Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello, welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And in today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Rick Cabina about his paper, Precision Teaching and Behavior Dynamics. This is part of that special issue focused on direct instruction and precision teaching. Rick is a professor of special education at Penn State University and director of research for Central Reach. Rick has published research articles, books, and chapters on evidence-based education, applied behavior analysis, and precision teaching. I had a lot of fun interviewing Rick, and I learned a lot. I think you will as well. And so without further ado, here is my interview with Rick Cabina. Hello, Rick, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Thank you for having me, Cody. We're excited to have you and to, to talk about your, your article. Before we jump into the article, we always love to hear about our guest's background, what their role is, and sort of what led them to this research. So do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I grew up in a place uh, that many people, uh, it's called, well, I actually grew up in Canfield, but you say Youngstown, Ohio, because no one ever knows these little small places that you live in. And in Youngstown, uh, I was an undergrad. I thought I wanted to, or I was a high school kid. I thought I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. So I go to this place called uh, Youngstown State University, which was our local college, and I had a professor there named Steve Graff. Turns out that Steve Graff was this guy who loved precision teaching uh, and behavior analysis. We had some other behavior analysts. It was a very eclectic program, but we had maybe three behavior analysts in there, and uh, just through uh, mentorship from Steve, I learned more about precision teaching and uh, I said, Hey, Steve, you know, where should I go? Uh, You know, I want to, you know, when you get a a psych undergrad, it's most of the time preparatory for another degree. And I, he said, you know, you want to go up to Ohio state. There's this guy there named John Cooper who does this stuff with precision teaching. So I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, not knowing anything. I go to Ohio state. You know, there's Bill Heward, Tim Heron. Um, Diane Sonato, Ralph Gardner, all of these other amazing people. And I just lucked into my career just through you know, not knowing any better. And of course, I never went down that route of clinical psychology. And I was very fortunate to have those people in my life because it led me to where I am today. That's awesome. And so is your, your graduate degrees, are they in special education then? Yeah. So I undergrad was psych, master's in special ed, went out in practice for a number of years because in special ed, I always wanted to go back and get a doctorate. 
that's a degree where you can't, it's not like psychology where you could literally start as an undergrad and go all the way up to the PhD. You have to have practical experience. So I was in the field for a few years and then went back to Ohio State for my doctorate. Awesome. And do you want to tell the listeners what you're up to today, what your current role is and, and how that involves precision teaching? Sure. I am a professor at Penn State University. I am in the special education program. And I've been, I've been a professor since, since 99, but I was only at my very first job for one year. I've been at Penn State since 2000. And in my role, I conduct research on behavior analysis, precision teaching, uh, a whole other few things that I'm interested in. And I teach courses. I teach an undergrad course on reading. I also teach a single case, uh, single case course. And then uh, you know, I work with students and I do service. You know, those are the three things that define us in higher education. And you know, I'm heavy on, on the research side, writing, publishing, conducting experiments, but I do those other activities also. And one of your major research lines seems to be related to precision teaching. And you mentioned sort of being introduced to that as, a, as an undergraduate. Was that sort of when that officially connected or clicked for you that this is a really cool technology or, or did it continue to develop as you got more and more clinical experience? Like where did this love story begin? Assuming it's a love story. Definitely. You don't stay with something that long. If you don't like it, it's to some degree. I, that's a, a really uh, perceptive question. I was, you know, I learned about this thing called precision teaching, which is applied. It's an applied system. And I said, well, how could I use this for myself? And back when I was an undergrad, I was into golf. And I said, I wonder if I could use this to get better. And sure enough, I got a lot better. And ever since then, I'm like, wow, this is the one thing that helped me get much better with this thing that I love. And uh, I wanted to learn more about it. And of course, from there, once I actually got out in the field and started seeing how well it worked, it just confirmed everything that I learned as an undergrad and as a grad student. That's awesome. In, in this particular paper, you wrote part of the special issue that came out in behavior analysis and practice in December. Can you talk about maybe what your motivation was for this particular paper and, and why you see describing the relationship between precision teaching and behavior dynamics as being something that it would be useful for, for behavior analysts to understand? I am a huge fan of science. In fact, I like to consider myself a scientist first, throw whatever label you want on after me, you know, behavior analyst, precision teacher, direct instruction, uh, whatever. And if you have that type of attitude, then you're going to respect science. You're going to look more into it. You're going to look widely and see what does it have to offer? And science is, it's, it's a, a very, on the one hand, it's a simple activity, but on the other hand, it's complicated activity. And science is looking at studying the physical world. 
And I, as I have done more reading in science, I have tended to take on uh, the the thinking of well, how can how can our particular brand of science be improved? And because of the study that I've done in the past, I have found areas where we can greatly improve our science. And I hope people, I hope the listeners, you know, when you hear something like that, you're comfortable with it because in science, it's all like 99% of everything that we've discovered in science has been overturned. Just look at the history of it. It's going to happen in our field too. And you have to be comfortable with that because science is this, has this tentative hold on knowledge. And this paper, a lot of times people would ask me, oh, you know, you have a, a lot of people don't know about precision teaching, number one. And so I would sometimes hear people that don't like precision teaching or are indifferent to precision teaching uh, will be dismissive of it. And they'll say things like, ah, there's really no data there. It's all anecdotal or clinical or lab uh, directed. And understanding uh, what behavior dynamics are, which I mean, dynamics is out of, of science in general, and we'll talk about that more as, as we uh, move forward in this podcast. But I thought, oh, this is something that needs to be said. My advisor, John Cooper, wrote a paper on behavior dynamics. And before that, there was uh, M. Jackson Marr, Jack Marr. Uh, he wrote a paper on behavior dynamics for behavior analysis. And other than those, I have probably the third paper on dynamics, there's like nothing else out there. So this might seem really obscure, but this is how science works. If you find something that you think is useful and can contribute to your field, write about it, study it, dive into it, and it may turn out one day to be a very big contribution. Right now, a lot of people don't know about this, but that's why you write papers and get the word out. Absolutely. And I love the wording you use. You said science has a tentative hold on knowledge that, and, and you kind of talked about the fact that 99% of, of all science is essentially uh, overturned and, and, and proved upon. And I think that that's uh, really true. And I think that's important for the, the listeners and, and the readers of behavior analysis and practice to, to grasp onto and for our field to really uh, lean into. Now, the paper, as you've talked about, is focused primarily on precision teaching and then the understanding of behavior dynamics. Can you provide an introduction or an explanation of what precision teaching is for the listeners who, who may not be familiar with the discipline? Sure. Precision teaching is a measurement decision-making system. That's what it is. You will hear some people, uh, a lot of times I get reviews, people will ask me to be a reviewer, and I'll also listen to people talk, and sometimes people get it wrong. People will define precision teaching as an instructional approach. It is not an instructional approach. People will define it as uh, building fluency. That came out of precision teaching. Precision teaching is a measurement, a very precise measurement system that enables you to make 
very good decisions, high probability decisions. And there are four steps to it. Pinpoint, record, change, try again. And those, those steps came out of, uh, from Ogden Lindsley, those steps came out of uh, a process that allowed parents, students, teachers, other researchers to look at whatever they're interested in. You pinpoint the behavior, which is looking at very specifically uh, what is the behavior. Uh, then you are going to measure it, and then you record your data in a very specific, precise way. Then you put it on this specialized visual display, which is called a standard acceleration chart, which has lots of properties that are amazing. And from there, you analyze your data and say, should I keep going or do I need to make a change? And if I need to make a change, I'm going to try again until I can resolve whatever the issue is. So those are the four steps of precision teaching, and they define the measurement decision-making system. Not to belabor the point, and I think you gave a really good explanation of what precision teaching is, but having taught precision teaching or sort of introduced precision teaching to my students, I think that uh, the, the struggle that many people have when learning about precision teaching is the idea that there is no one sort of instructional strategy associated with precision teaching. And I love the quote that you had in your paper, which is precision teaching does not require its users to adopt a specific curriculum or instructional method. And you provide a citation for white 2005. Where do you, I think, I think, let me, re, let me reset that. It seems to me that maybe part of the confusion is perhaps the, the, the title precision teaching. Cause I think the teaching piece kind of, uh, can lead people to think, oh, this is a, a strategy of teaching specifically. Do you have other ideas as to why there may be so much confusion about what precision teaching actually is? Well, number one, I think you hit the nail on the head. You're absolutely right that that name implies an instructional approach. When Ogden Lindsley, when he first started out the field, you go back to the 60s, he called what he did precision behavior management. Back in the 60s, 70s, when behavior analysis was growing, when you looked at the first generation of people who took this science, which started off experimentally into this apply, all, all these applied settings, he thought that, okay, uh, adding this precision, the things that I talked about to whatever you're doing is going to allow you to, to do whatever that activity is better. So he came up with precision behavior management. He said, if you're doing this with social work, it would be precision social work. If you were doing this with nursing, it would be precision nursing. If you were doing this with sales, it'd be precision sales. And if you happen to be doing this in education, it would be precision teaching. Well, guess what stuck? Guess what most people did? Well, most people were in education. So the precision teaching just kind of took off. There were other people doing all of those other uh, activities that I just mentioned, precision nursing, uh, precision social work, but, but there were very few people in those fields uh, and it just didn't take off. Uh, a second reason why 
a lot of people don't know about it is where would they come, where would they come in contact with this information? You, it's not, it's not like in, in our textbooks, there's a section on precision teaching. In the current white book, uh, the Cooper Heron uh, Heward book, you can find some information on a standard acceleration chart, but that's it. And that isn't talking about precision teaching. There's not a lot of places to go in, in, in people's course of uh, graduate studies, what professors are going to teach this? Where does it fit in? So it's, you, know, you have a, a few variables, I believe, that are responsible for people not being aware of it. One of the things you mentioned at the beginning of the interview was that some people um, within the field, and I'm sure beyond the field, who are unfamiliar with precision teaching may not understand the, the research or, the, or the, the evidence that supports precision teaching. And you begin to outline some of that in the paper and talk about where the evidence for precision teaching comes from. Could, could, you, could you provide a little bit of context there for the listeners? Yeah. When we talk about evidence, typically that means peer-reviewed studies. Do you have a base of studies that are in the literature? Now, precision teaching did have its own journal. It started off as the Journal of Precision Teaching in 1980, and then they added the word acceleration, so it, it changed. Maybe that was in the 90s to the Journal of precision teaching and acceleration. There were, you know, it's peer reviewed. There were many people there. So you have all of these studies. Those are available, by the way, for free. If any of you are interested, uh, you can go to acceleration.org and download those. And you can also search in Eric and, and they'll, they'll come up. But beyond the journal, there are many entries into other journals, you just, depending on what you're, what you're looking at, if it's education, you can find studies of precision teaching in the journal of, uh, behavioral education, uh, ETC, uh, all of the journals. And of course, uh, the very journal that we're talking about now, uh, has, has published a whole special issue uh, the behavior analysis and practices publish a whole special issue on, on precision teaching. There are books out there. There's lots of evidence to support precision teaching. And I, I once interviewed Ogden Lindsley and I asked him this, this question that you're asking me. Well, a similar question, actually. I said, can precision teaching fail? Have you seen any instances of precision teaching failing. And his response was, if you engage in the steps of precision teaching, the four steps that I said, pinpoint, record, change, try again, and what you have doesn't work, the precision teaching method worked. In other words, just because you don't have positive results, if you engage in those steps, you have recorded a behavior, you've measured it, and then you made a decision, that's what precision teaching does. And we have all sorts of, you know, there are studies that, that talk about that particular 
way of looking at the world. But then some of these discoveries that were made out, out of precision teaching, the frequency building to behavioral fluency, we have lots of studies there. Some people do that and they use precision teaching to measure it. And there's probably 40 plus studies out there that I could point to right now that, that show this is, these are the effects when, when you do this. So there's, there's lots of evidence for precision teaching. Somewhat implied in a lot of this conversation is the fact that precision teaching can really be utilized in a lot of different settings with a lot of different types of learners. Um, I've personally uh, seen it in like a typical school settings. I've seen it in, in autism centers. Is there, do you see the research sort of spread across those areas, you know, considering most sort of behavior analysts tend to work with individuals with autism and developmental disabilities? Do we see a research base there? And I know that precision teaching is meant to be used not just with and by behavior analysts, but also regular educators and special educators. Um, so could you talk about if, if we see most research in one area or the other or kind of spread across? You do see most of the research in education. It's called precision teaching because many of the practitioners have taken it to educational uh, settings, but you can find it in other places. And this last precision teaching conference we had, one of the main speakers was uh, Kirk Kirby, who's part of Team ABA, and he has a whole company with like-minded colleagues who are using precision teaching in sports, which is, uh, there, there have been other people who've done this on the applied side, and you can find a few studies out there with sports, which is great. It, it's, it mirrors ABA, in my opinion, in the sense that right now ABA is very focused on autism spectrum disorders, but yet just because you may have 70% of the field, according to uh, the, the BACB website that's focused on that, you see all of these other subdisciplines and places where people are applying behavior analysis. And it's the same thing with precision teaching, but just because precision teaching is such a smaller scale than how many behavior analysts we have, you don't see that many people doing it in these other areas. But I am, I'm glad you asked that question because sometimes I'll get people that say, hey, I wanna, I wanna do precision teaching, but I just, I, you know, I wanna use it for reductive behaviors. Again, there's this misconception that you have to use precision teaching to grow behaviors. Anytime you take something and you pinpoint it, and you record it through the, the steps of precision teaching, you put it on a chart and you make a decision, you're doing precision teaching. So it doesn't matter whether it's reductive behavior or growth behavior, it all can fit within the system. With the sports piece, do you feel like that's a little full circle for you considering you started out with your interest <laughs> in the, yes. the golf? Was it exciting to see that sort of piece of the field growing a little bit? Absolutely. I... There is so much promise with precision teaching. I obviously, at this point in my career, I started off as an undergrad in, in 85. I met Steve Graff in 86. I've been doing precision teaching since 1986. That officially makes me old, or <laughs> I like to use the term, I'm a veteran. That, so I've seen so much, and there's, and by so much, I mean incredible 
feats of change, of behavior change. But yet many of my colleagues are not using this system. And whenever I, I talk, I can show people like, look at all this, look at this data. I can, I can show them the logic. I can show them if you do this, this will happen. But yet it's still a lot to do to get people to change. As you all know, behavior change is not an easy thing, but you know, that's why we do science. And I'm very thankful, obviously, for these kinds of opportunities to talk to your audience. And maybe when they listen to me and my colleagues, they give it a shot and they can see for themselves that there's something to this thing called precision teaching, which would certainly benefit their practice. Yeah. And at the end of the interview, we'll, we'll save it. We'll, we'll put a little cliffhanger in here for now, but eventually I'll ask you if you've got any recommendations for people that are sort of new to the area that want to begin behavior analysts that want to begin sort of exploring precision teaching and, and the idea of using it, but we'll circle back to that. Okay. One of the sort of core pieces, it seems like that is necessary to understand if you're going to effectively use precision teaching as a behavior analyst is this, the concept of behavior dynamics. Could you, could you shed a light on what behavior dynamics is and how that relates to experimental design? Sure. If I asked you or your audience, how do you, in our field of behavior analysis, how do we know if we have an effect? We have something called a functional relation. And that functional relation is a pretty big deal. And it's based off of, you know, we have this steady state behavior that we uh, are looking for. And we, it's based on the steady state logic. And what we do is we will have a baseline, we'll analyze that baseline, we will then have an intervention. And depending on which, how we experimentally arrange that, which, which design we're using, we can look at the data and say, okay, it looks like we may have a functional relation. That's one way of doing science and approaching the world. Now, dynamics, that term uh, may not be familiar to many people, but many people may have heard of or know of thermodynamics. So think about therm thermodynamics in that term. What does that mean? Thermodynamics is a branch of physics. And what it does is it studies the effects of changes in temperature. We could refer to temperature as heat. It also looks at pressure, volume, and it does this uh, with these physical systems at the macroscopic scale. And the way thermodynamics functions is it analyzes the motion of these particles. And based off of all of that, we have this field. So there's two words there. There's thermo, which gets to the heat and the pressure, the volume. And in other words, this, uh, well, these forms of energy and then dynamics, which means mechanics. And that's concerned with the effects of uh, these forces on motions of objects. Now, Jack Marr, when he wrote this paper, which by the way, I, I would recommend you all 
download that. I want to say it's, it's either in Java or the experimental. I can't remember which one it is. I, it's probably, I could look in my paper. Well, we'll to, link to it as well. In the okay, show notes. Good. well. We'll link to the website you reference, or you can download all the papers from the precision teaching journal and we'll link to this paper as well. Excellent. So with thermodynamics and with dynamics, there was a conference. This was, I think his paper was published in 89. Or no, the conference was 89, maybe he published a paper in 91. But there was a conference of like-minded behavior analysts that all got together and they were discussing how can we, can we approach behavior analysis in terms of these dynamics? Because, because we've adopted uh, looking at behavior through steady states, there was a lot of information that back when Skinner and colleagues first started off looking at it, there were, there, there were lots of states, uh, transition states, transitory states that were fascinating when you looked at what the, what the animals they were working with were doing. And just looking at behavior through the steady state lens isn't the, that shouldn't be the only way we come to understand the world. And in fact, with dynamics, I, I, I've read more about it and it's something that fascinates me. There is a, uh, there's this guy who is a, a theoretical ecologist at the University of Connecticut. His name is Peter Turchin. And he was vexed by the fact that in history, there's over 200 explanations for why the Roman Empire has collapsed. And that people will often think of things like history, like, well, well, history is not even a science. But he, he was thinking, well, you know what? We can apply science to history. And he came up with this new term called cliodynamics. So Clio was the muse of history in dynamics was getting at these regular predictable patterns that you could make. And I, I just loved reading about his approach because we can apply all of that thinking to behavior analysis and look at just because we don't have a single case design study going, that's not the, that doesn't have, that doesn't lock in our truth. That is not the only way to discover knowledge. And in fact, if it was, if through uh, those kinds of experimentation was the only way that we could create uh, and, and discover knowledge, we would have a problem. And, and I talk about this in the paper. Is paleontology a science? You know, paleontologists aren't doing active experiments. Or how about astronomy? Is astronomy a science? I mean, if you want to say you have to do active experimentation, then you're going to be dismissing all these branches of science. And with thinking about these through the, uh, looking at this through the lens of dynamics, we can have a lot of information that might not necessarily come to us through the single case experimental designs. And you know, that's part of what Jack Marr was saying, like Skinner, guess what? Skinner didn't do a multiple baseline back in the day. Skinner wasn't doing a changing criterion back in the day. We didn't dismiss the entire foundation of our science because we didn't have uh, you know, these experimental designs. 
No, we had, there were so many interesting things that we were studying back then. So this paper, when I talk about dynamics, is a way to look at and consider that there are other avenues to information and knowledge creation and precision teaching happens to be, I feel, part of that story. When you talked about the fact that Skinner really wasn't using single subject designs as, as we understand them today in your paper, I thought back instantly to some of the earlier work uh, that I read by Skinner. And I was like, you're absolutely right. It's, it, it's a fascinating point that you bring up that the foundation of our science in, in many situations wasn't utilizing what we would today consider demonstrating functional relations or, or at least demonstrating experimental control. So within the paper, you also talked about some of the difficulties that in particular teachers would, would experience if trying to utilize standard single subject experimental designs. Could you elaborate on those a little bit and, and sort of uh, cue our listeners into what some of those issues are? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. If I could step back and answer your question by going back to the difference between natural science and social science. We have two, def two definitions of that. When we talk about natural science, we think about this branch of science that's dealing with the physical world. So physics, chemistry, geology, biology, a bunch of studies that are dealing with the natural world. When we talk about social science, it's exactly what it says. It's this branch of science is dealing with the social world. So psychology, economics, archaeology, political science. And some people have, have come up with natural, uh, uh, we have this distinction and some people have used hard science versus soft science. And then it, it uh, sometimes the soft science is meant to be used in a pejorative, but we do have these sciences that operate uh, or have these different focuses and behavior analysis is, even though we're dealing with people started off as a natural science. And I think that's important for people to understand. And in the natural sciences, many people will hold up uh, physics as you know, the queen of all of the natural sciences, because it has this incredible resume has done all these things. And it's, you get uh, lots of prediction and control, but the difference between uh, working with an atom versus working with a person is how much control can you exert on your specific subject matter? And you can, you have many, you understand many of the factors that are going in with that atom. And when you conduct your study, you can have, you can set it up. So, okay, when I do these things and run this experiment, here's what I find. Whereas when we're working with people, we try to control as many variables as we can, but there's so many variables we just cannot control. And because of that, we will, we will have more variability 
in in our results than you could find in in the natural side. Or uh, I shouldn't say that. Again, I'm I'm going to put in behavior analysis is a natural science. And by that, I mean, the way we conduct our research is different from the way people would conduct, uh, like some of many of the people in psychology using, uh, statistics and, uh, inferential statistics, particularly versus what we're doing, which is very similar to the ideas in physics where we're focusing in on this one thing and we're trying to control as many variables as we can. We're working with one person and, uh, or one, one, one specific target, I guess, is, is a way to think about it. So with teachers, uh, you know, teachers, when you take precision teaching and you're working in the, uh, applied these applied settings, there's so much control that they don't have. And this is the same thing that happens with behavior analysts. There's only so much control you can exert. And as a result, you try to do what you, you try to run these experiments and, and do the best job that you can, but there's all of these things that are going on out there that we just have no control of. The you know, student comes to school and uh, no one fed that, no one fed that student. How are you going to account for that? And if the student doesn't say anything, and that student can have a bad day, that student uh, could 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 do engage uh, very poorly and not respond to whatever you set up, whatever your experimental invention is, it has nothing to do with the experimental invention. But you can't control that, and you might not know that. And that's what happens when we work in these applied settings. We try to do our best, but because these teachers have many things that are going on, they can still be applied, they can still be applied scientists and go in there and try to control as many variables as they can. But there could be things that creep in there, which would uh, in increase the, the variability that, that we see. And you state in the paper that ultimately utilizing a behavior dynamics approach rather than a traditional single subject experimental design is much more suited to the applied needs of teachers using precision teaching. Could you, could you elaborate on that? Could you explain why that is and, and, and how ultimately behavior dynamics help us understand the, the change that we are seeing? Yeah. This is the nuanced perspective that I hope people get. Let's say that you have uh, a thousand, a thousand reports of something happening. You, 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 know, you go to your, your social media and someone says, Hey, here's, here's a thousand reports of, of something happening. You know, whatever that is when people drink, uh, Turkish, coffee, they have better days. Are you, you going to believe that or not? Uh, a lot of people, depending on how that evidence is based, you need to be skeptical of it. And there could be something there. Now, what about Skinner? What did Skinner do? Well, if we go back to our early days, Skinner, when, and again, I'm using Skinner and it wasn't just Skinner. He had many colleagues that, that followed suit and helped to form. But of course, Skinner being the father of the science and 
coming up with these incredible ideas when no one else had them deserves the credit to, to being the founder of our field. And looking at his uh, early experiments, we can see that he applied an extremely impressive array of control. We had this experimental chamber, you know, Skinner was trying to control the, the ambient sound, the temperature, the lighting, how much the animal ate, uh, looking at uh, just as much control as you could exert with that animal. And Skinner discovered things. And of course, everyone who was doing this, if you have now a thousand people applying strong science, that's something that we should pay attention to. That, in my opinion, is evidence. That's convincing evidence. It's not like I said, where you have a thousand people who are maybe giving their opinion on something versus a thousand people now who are applying this very strong science in generating this evidence. And my point is with precision teaching, we have many instances of these teachers and other folks who are applying science to individuals as maybe not like Skinner because they don't have all that control, but we should look at what they're doing and not be dismissive of it and be like, oh, well, you know, there's a thousand people's opinions. Like, no, if you're applying precision teaching and you're taking data, you are, you're engaging in a very inductive approach and it's a way higher level of evidence than if you're just asking for people's opinions. So that's the, the idea with these dynamics. And if you have all of this information that's based on the science and it's inductive, you can start having confidence in that information. So if precision teachers are doing something specifically, and again, you, you have to look at the literature and you have to look at what the topic is. And I'm not saying everything that everyone does in precision teaching falls under uh, the, this, this framework that I'm talking about, but a lot does. And it's the same thing with behavior analysis. Not everything that everyone does in behavior analysis, you're instantly going to say, oh, well, that has credibility. We always have to be open-mindedly skeptical. We always have to be looking at the data. We have to be looking at the lineage of that data and studies and seeing how, you know, what's, what's the, the, the track record of it, where, how's it developed? Do you have direct replications, systematic replications and so on? And that's what I'm introducing with this paper in the term behavior dynamics. With behavior dynamics, if you're sort of, to my understanding, and, and, I, and I guess I should apologize to the readers, I feel like this is a very visual conversation, at least for me, <laughs> yes. understanding research design is so visual and seeing, sort of seeing the experimental control. Um, and so you can, of course, pull up the, the article. Rick does lay out sort of what the traditional visual representations are for the single subject design. If we were to try to visualize what a behavior dynamics approach looks like, is there a comparison or is there a way of sort of understanding what that might actually look like on paper or on a graph? Yeah. So the four main single case experimental designs that we have are there. They're not 
and I say they're the main ones because many people have all of these other ones that you know, some are iterations on those designs and then some are kind of their own design, but you're like, well, that kind of looks like this design over here. Uh, Johnson and Pennypacker, you know, they have a number of editions of their fabulous book. And in there, they have this scientific notation for how you can diagram and come up with your own experimental designs, which is a really cool system. So depending on what you're doing, you could have that diagramming system and you could say, well, here is my specific design and here are all these other particular folks that do it. And if we use that system, then we would have a visual representation of what this could look like. Now, here's the thing with precision teaching that I love, and I feel everyone in the audience should move to the standard acceleration chart or something similar to this because of this reason. Well, there's actually three reasons, but I'm going to talk about one, quantification of whatever you're working with. I just recently did a study and, you know, we're not talking about that, but I'll just, I'll tease people with this study where we compared linear graphs with using your own subjective analysis. Like, oh, is that increasing moderately, uh, mildly, or really strongly? Those aren't the words we use, but that's the idea versus, oh, is this a times 1.4? You tell people this is a times 1.4. Is it times 1.8? No, it's a times 1.4. Guess what happens when you quantify your subject matter? Like 100% of people get what that thing is. Whereas when you ask people's opinion, guess what happens? Well, it's the same thing in our field. If you go back to this, again, when we talk about the track record, we have many studies that show in terms of people having agreement on the effects, it's like between 50 and 60%. Some people I've seen studies that are even below that, they're like 40%. And we've had this longstanding problem because you, you don't have these, we don't have decision rules. We have non-standardization with our graphs. Everyone makes up their own one. And you can't have a textbook where people are telling everyone, well, this is how it should be. This is how it should look. Because one graph is scaled from zero to three. The next graph is from zero to 100. So you have all of these issues. And you know, getting back to, uh, to your question, with precision teaching, not only do we have visual analysis that's standard, but we can quantify everything. And this is where I hope people get really excited about uh, what the standard acceleration chart has. Like, okay, let's say you don't want to go down the route of precision teaching and do the pinpointing and the recording. Use this chart and elevate what you're doing, elevate your practice. Because if you think that using your opinion is better than numbers, you're going to be wrong. And every single science out there that has been progressively better has gotten rid of people's opinion and has exquisitely quantified their subject matter. Don't take my word for it. Go out there and just see uh, people who've been successful and look at their degree of quantification and see, are any of them relying on the opinions of people? Now, people, we do have to interpret what we're finding. Yes, we have that. But in terms of the subject matter and using that as our data and, and coming to understand and analyze that, when again, going back and contrasting this with what Skinner did, Skinner had a standard, he used rate, 
and he had a standard visual display was the cumulative recorder. We've completely moved away from that. At any rate, uh, this is, these are the things that I start to get really excited about, and I don't want to go into a rant here, but your questions brought me to that line of thinking, and uh, hopefully that's okay to share with the listeners. Absolutely. Yeah. And I particularly enjoyed it. I'm finishing up the book Noise by Daniel Kahneman right now. Love that book. Yeah. And he talks about sort of um, error in in judgment and the fact that um, while experts tend to want to trust their own opinions and, and judgments about things, the reality is most of the time there's going to be variation in what experts say and therefore uh, you can sort of assume there's going to be error in what they're saying. And if you, as you were saying, if the, the experts in our field or the practitioners in our field are exuding decision-making power about how they're graphing and analyzing their data, we have to assume there's going to be variation and, and therefore error within that analysis. Yeah. Let me also add this. I come off pretty strong on this because I want people to see that we can do things in a better way, but I am in no way saying we don't have one heck of a science and we don't have a lot of power. We have an incredibly robust database. We have, even with the limitations of uh, the, the, the linear graphs that we have, we figured things out. And of course we have all of this work beforehand and we have people moving in other directions uh, people are applying statistical models. If you look at the experimental analysis of behavior now, you can find many journals or many articles in the journals where people are doing that. So again, uh, I believe we can elevate our science, but I'm in no way casting any aspersions on the things that we do because we have one heck of a strong science and I'm very proud to be part of it. Yeah, and, and I'll echo those sentiments. I think that sometimes criticism or a push to improve in certain areas can be taken as uh, sort of a, a dislike of the field or something like that, which I don't think is in any way uh, accurate. My, my mentor, Stephanie Peterson, when she would edit our papers or something like that, she would write on, on, the, on the first page sometimes, ink, e- ink equals love. Saying like the more I love that that I sort of edit and, and the more that I critique in your paper, it's it's because I care about you. I care about this paper. I care about this research, and I think the same can be true with this conversation. Are are there things that need to improve about behavior analysis? Absolutely, and I think those that are trying to improve the field, I think that's in in most cases out of love. You that is so well stated, and that's exactly how I feel about it. And we, we can never rest on our laurels and we're going to, we, we're an applied field. Uh, Well, we, we have people that do basic, but when we talk about uh, many people who are out there earning a living on behavior analysis, many of those folks are applied. And as a result, you have people who do science and it is the job of people like myself, yourself, and other people who are actively doing research to always push the borders of our science and always look to improve it. Because if honestly, if you don't have that, if you have stasis, you're a dead field. And uh, I'm glad uh, to hear you to articulate it that way, because that that's something that when you play by the rules of science, 
know, there's criticism in there. If you've ever engaged in peer review, people are going to criticize what you do because that's part of science. And when you have ideas, like I always like to say that science is the marketplace of ideas and the good ideas eventually are going to rise to the top and people are going to buy those not because of some flashy speaker, not because of you know, some marketing campaign, but because in science, everything is ruled by empirical data. And those are the things that are going to always drive us. Well said. Now, I want to be respectful of, of your time, and I want to make sure that we give you an opportunity to maybe provide some some thoughts or resources that you might want to share with our listeners in respect to if if someone is hearing about precision teaching for the first time that's you know this is a behavior analytic podcast so let's say it's a behavior analyst interesting and somehow incorporating precision teaching into their practice do you have any off-the-cuff recommendations on here's probably where you should start other than reading this special issue in behavior analysis and practice. Yeah. Journals are a great place to start. There are many in the past, there have been other special issues in other journals that have an array of articles. This particular one has some conceptual papers like my own but yet there's also uh, database articles. And if you, there are some really good articles out there. There are some uh, teaching exceptional children, uh, maybe two of them. One was done in the seventies, one was done in the nineties. And you can find articles out there that describe precision teaching in a very uh, elegant way. You can start there. Uh, books are another place, you know, shameless plug. I've written three. I'd love for you to buy any one of them. You know, I've, uh, my most recent book has been a collection of blogs, which I went back. I read what, you know, I blogged about for you know 20 years and I've edited them and I've put a little postscript on those and talked about what I learned from them. And that was, that was a fun experience to see how my thinking has grown and changed, uh, from, from when, early in my career to now, there are, if you're into social media, I don't know what's out there on TikTok, but certainly in Facebook, there's groups, you could go to Instagram, there there are people that are putting things out there. Uh, That's, that's another avenue, Uh, probably YouTube. Again, I haven't, I haven't searched these in a while, but you might be able to find some information maybe not a lot, but some things that might whet your appetite and start helping you think, oh, or even do, do you want to pursue this? Do you want to look more about this? And it's always helpful to, to, to engage people. And, and uh, if any of you can find a mentor, generally speaking, this is my life advice. I don't care what age you are, find someone who knows something and let them mentor you. You should, we should all be having mentors from our entire lives, but that certainly would be very helpful if you could get someone that, that could mentor you, you know, engage in verbal communities where, wherever you can find them. There, there are conferences, the, the most recent precision teaching conference. It's always held annually in November. It was just at St. Pete next year. It's going to be in Denver. Go to those conferences. You can find some workshops. Now, again, this happened a lot more with the pandemic it hasn't been uh, my, like myself. I was presenting maybe uh, 
10 to 12 times you know, in person a year, but that has, has, has changed a lot, but still, uh, you know, we're coming, we're moving into the endemic phase of the pandemic, which means you know, we're just going to live our lives with this thing. And you're seeing conferences pick up, listen to speakers. So there's a, there's a many places that you can go to, uh, acceleration.org. I mentioned that earlier. That's a, that's called the standard acceleration society. And that is the body that governs precision teaching. They put on workshops, they do outreach. There are some, I believe there might even be some, uh, scholarships there. I, uh, I'd have to check, but at any rate, those would be some of the ways that you could learn more about precision teaching. Excellent resources. We'll, we'll link to as many of those as we can in the show notes. We'll link to the website. We'll link to your books so that the listeners have easy access there. Now, in terms of looking at the future of precision teaching, I know that one of your motivations is to sort of disseminate this information so that behavior analysts can utilize precision teaching to help the clients that they're working with. Are there sort of major next steps that you think the sort of subdiscipline of precision teaching needs to take? Precision teaching, if we look at it in a whole as a method that's being used in applied settings, we, there, there can be obvious, there's always, there's can always be more studies. Where do you apply those studies? Where are you going to grow? And do you want to apply them in education? Do you want to apply it in healthcare? Uh, where, where do you want to, to put it? I don't necessarily have that answer. I, I've done a lot of work in education, a lot with behavior change and, uh, I'd like to see it grow. I am presently, uh, I also work uh, with Central Reach and Central Reach is a technology platform. And I am very interested in how technology can help shape what we're doing. And technology with precision teaching, I feel is an area that's going to help it grow. For years, many people, struggled to engage with precision teaching because if you've ever seen that chart the first time you've seen it and no one's ever showed it to you you're like you know what i don't even want to go down that road because it is a daunting chart you know it has all these lines they're close together it has a ratio view and it takes explaining when i for many years as a professor i would spend two and a half lectures and these were three-hour classes on trying to get people just at a minimum competence. And once you have that, you need to maintain your competence. You have to start doing, and it takes a lot of work to use that paper chart. And these are one of the big reasons why I feel many people aren't using precision teaching because there's this huge response effort that you have to engage in. And frankly, if no one's pushing you to do it, you know, behaviors like water. It's going to follow this course, this path of least resistance. So why are you going to do that? A technology now that we have that can make precision teaching so much easier where you cut out all of those. In fact, 
uh, a software that I co-created with, with a business partner from State College, Dave Stevens. We uh, created Chartlytics, and of course, it was acquired by Central Reach, and it's now called Precision X. And you know, we've done studies where you have an RBT, and within five minutes, they're using the rudiments of precision teaching. That's what that's what technology can do. So I feel that that will, there is a huge step forward that precision teaching could make with technology. Now there's, there's, again, there's so much to that question you asked. There's so many different areas that we could look at. I did a study on pinpointing, which is part of precision teaching and found that guess what? Pinpointing did better than operational definitions. Our entire field is enamored with operational definitions. Well, maybe enamored is the wrong word. They're using them. You know, they're in our textbooks. They're out there. there. Could be a lot more research on that. There's there's just so much that can be done. And anytime you have a scientific field, when you understand the the breadth of what that science has to offer, you just see all of these possibilities, all of these different paths, which it can go down. So that it's a really good question. And uh, if, if people are veteran precision teachers, many of those folks are going down, uh, you know, again, a, a specific way of uh, a line of research where that's what they're doing. We just need more people applying precision teaching and, and engaging in the research. And, you know, there's many areas that would be fruitful. It's exciting to hear about what the future of precision teaching holds, and I, and I am especially excited as you describe the sort of innovations in technology and, and how that may interact with precision teaching to make it more accessible to, to certain uh, groups using it. So that's exciting. Is there anything else before we wrap up that you'd like to share with the listeners about precision teaching in this article or anything else? I hope that everyone reads the articles that are in the special issue. I had a chance to read them. And when you're in a field, it's always amazing to see what other people are doing. Anytime you talk to people, no one's going to have the same idea of like everyone is going to have their own interpretation of whatever their subject matter is. And that's part of being a human. You know, science is a human activity. And uh, I will sometimes have disagreements with my colleagues and my colleagues will disagree with me, but that's all part of science. And reading and, and learning more about it is so important. And this special issue is just so dynamic. And I loved reading some of the, uh, some of what my colleagues are doing. And I hope the listeners have a chance to read and, and digest what many of these articles are saying, because you'll, you'll start seeing commonalities among the precision teaching focused articles and see how are people thinking about it? What are they doing with it? And that will help people grow and uh, expand their appreciation for what precision teaching can do. I echo those sentiments. I think it was an excellent special issue. And so thank you for your contribution to it. And thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
before you go too far, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. The links to our social media are in our show notes. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin, and to my production assistant for this episode, Beyonce Ferrucci. And as always, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.